Tonight's reading is from Matthew 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. God's word for God's people. You guys can have a seat. Hey, my name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here. And we've got a thick passage, even though it's short. Um, But hey, so we uh, planted this church, Providence, about three and a half years ago. And when we did, uh, God gave us a vision, uh, this mission to go uh, or to make and send disciples. That's what we say around here. We're, we're all about making and sending disciples. And like most church plants or most organizations that are early on in their years, um, you, you always have to... Um, uh, you also have to clarify your vision. Okay, like, what are we doing? Are we really going after this? What does this really look like? And one of the things that we noticed is that um, unlike some of our sister church plants who have been planted, uh, you know, kind of in the area in the same time as us, um, we are not, we were not called to a specific geographic area on a map per se. You know, I know that we're in the middle of town, but we have um, you know, like city like Council Bluffs, who is called uniquely to minister to Council Bluffs. And then we've got up the road here, city like Benson, who's called to, to witness to that and be a light in that uh, eclectic, fun neighborhood of Benson. In our church, Providence Church, we knew that we were called to plant a church kind of in the middle of the city, but we're like, well, wait, what specifically is God calling our mission to be? And so through a lot of wrestling and prayer and, um, and Andrew and I getting off uh, site a couple times and, and doing a little uh, soul searching, uh, one thing seemed clear, and that was um, maybe God hasn't called us specifically to a neighborhood in this season, but instead, to, it, he's maybe not calling us to make disciples in a specific geographic region, but instead he's calling us to make a, a certain type of disciple. I would call it maybe a resilient disciple, a deep Disciple, someone who who really hears the the words of Jesus and says, "Okay, I'm going to follow him no matter the cost." If you're here at our evangelism training yesterday, Daniel talked to us about counting the cost in the mission of Jesus, and we're saying, "Hey, if Jesus said take up your cross and follow him through anything, even 2020, even 2021, even a global pandemic or whatever whatever comes our way, that is what we are called to do, and that's the disciples that we're trying to create." around here. And I would say, looking out, as I'm looking at all of you guys, man, Jesus has done a work. And I think he's creating those kinds of disciples in our church. And I would say the Sermon on the Mount is uh, great for us because this vision for Jesus' kingdom people is exactly what Jesus' sermon, his most famous sermon, was about. 
He describes what true followers look like. In this passage that Kim read tonight, um, it's actually an intro to the next six sessions, the next six sermons that we're going to preach. And so um, what Jesus does in this sermon is he introduces an idea or a concept that we're going to apply for the next six weeks. So I'll just give you a warning. Uh, Tonight is a little bit teaching or concept heavy, but I think it's going to be helpful for us moving forward as we talk about um, Jesus teaching in the future on, in the coming weeks, we're talking about anger and we're talking about lust and we're talking about divorce, some of these passages that you've probably heard before. And in this, Jesus introduces, in this intro, this 517 through 20 section, Jesus introduces kind of a, a key to discipleship. There's kind of a a secret of how what disciples are or what they do in order to truly follow him. And it's based in this idea of righteousness. This is what disciples actually do. And so um, there's a Sermon on the Mount scholar, Jonathan Pennington, and he describes righteousness and how it's used in the Sermon on the Mount specifically this way. He says righteousness is whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. Now, that might not blow you away right away, but the thing that is unique about this definition is this whole person part. And this is what Jesus is going to drive home in the passage. And the idea is that whole person is talking about your external actions that you do and your internal heart disposition that you have. And the whole person part is bringing those two things together in alignment with God's heart. It's taking your external actions and your internal heart and its desires and bringing those into alignment with what God cares about. Now, this should make us look in the mirror, and hopefully this does tonight, and assess, okay, wait, are my external actions and are my heart's disposition, are those things in alignment with one another? And if they are, are those things in alignment with God? Uh, I think that there's, Jesus is going to describe maybe two ditches that we can fall into, either one side or the other. And, and the first one, um, maybe I would describe it like this. If, say, if I would uh, follow you around with a camera for the next week and we would record everything you do, you would quickly learn by maybe how you have road rage on the road or maybe how you talk to your spouse or your kids or maybe how you do your work or whatever. You would quickly learn, oh, wait a minute. Their external actions are not exactly in line with what God's will would be. And we're gonna call that rebellion tonight. Or on the other ditch, um, maybe if we would observe your life, we would observe that you do a lot of Christian things um, and you, you may look a little bit like, you know, Mother Teresa or something, but if we would get inside your internal monologue that's going on up here, or we'd be able to know the true desires of your heart, we would actually see that your external actions may look like they're in line, but there's actually a place where your heart is that's not actually in line with that. It's kind of a show that you're putting on. And we're gonna call that religion. So tonight's sermon is about the righteous, the religious, and the rebellious. And I think it's important to ask ourselves this question. Does my external actions and my heart's disposition, are those things aligned with God's heart? Am I living in rebellion? Am I living through religion? Or am I living righteously with Jesus? And Jesus is going to show how he actually helps us do this. As 
the righteous one. And so <clears throat> I want to uh, have you open your Bibles to the passage that we read. It's Matthew 5, 17 and 18. And um, I, I just want to say, I would love to just pray for a second for our hearts. Um, there were a lot of random, I'll just say this, there was a lot of random moving pieces happening before the sermon that was like, this is kind of crazy and chaotic. And so I would love even to calm my own heart down if we could pray for a second and ask that Jesus would move in a powerful way as we gather here. Um, Jesus, uh, we are here for you. Um, we want to hear your voice. Would your spirit move in, in a strong way? Would we be able to know um, and, he, and know your voice, hear your voice, and act accordingly? Um, Jesus, we give you this time. We pray that we would be able to worship you through it. Would the words of your scriptures jump off the page to us as we process tonight? We pray this in your powerful name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so... We're going to start out by reading Matthew 5, 17 through 18. I promise, if you've never heard this before, this might be kind of confusing. So the passage says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. This is Jesus talking. He said, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is talking about the Old Testament and the law here. And what he's going to tell us is that God from the beginning has always had the same intent and heart for his people. He's always worked in similar ways. He's always bringing a people to him and he wants to live in relationship with people through a covenant. He wants to be in relationship with people. And he's actually going to use rules and laws in order to help govern that relationship to work well. Jesus is going to show us that in this text. Um, and he's going to show us how God has not changed from the Old Testament. And he's going to show us that, that righteousness has been a calling all along. Now, if we could get that verse up there, I want to look at that again. It says at the very beginning, Jesus says this. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. Now, Ask yourself, why would Jesus need to say, do not think this? Well, in the context, it's because people were accusing him, specifically religious leaders were accusing him of being a crazy rebel. They were watching his lifestyle. They were living this meticulous lifestyle. And they were saying, wait a minute, Jesus, you're eating with tax collectors. You're eating with sinners. You're around women and prostitutes. You're around demon-possessed people. You're exercising demons around them. You're around these unclean, all of these different things. And you don't have any respect for God. You don't have any respect for the law. You're the rebellious one, and you need to get into line. That's essentially the idea. So Jesus comes in, and he said, hey, I just got to clarify something. Don't think that I've come to abolish all these things. And he says, abolish the law and the prophets. And just if you're wondering, the law and the prophets is a phrase that was used um, to describe the entirety of the Jewish scriptures, which um, in our day and age, we know as the Old Testament. So he's saying, hey, I didn't, I didn't abolish these things. Abolish is just the idea of tearing down. I'm not tearing down those things. As a matter of fact, Jesus says, I've come to fulfill it. Now, by the way, if you have heard people say, or maybe even this is something that, that you think, you, you're like, man, I like Jesus, but I don't really like the God of the Old Testament. I don't really like anything it has to say. That's actually a contradiction to what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, hey, I'm pointing out to you, I am in alignment with the Old Testament. Uh, the same God and the same character is, is coming through here. It's not possible um, 
to like Jesus and not the God of the Old Testament because Jesus believes the Old Testament. He teaches it and, and he actually um, fulfills the Old Testament. They're all in line with one another. Now, he said, I haven't come to abolish, but to fulfill. And then he says, not until heaven and earth pass away, not until you know, the end of the age, the end of the time, he says not a dot or, excuse me, he says not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. You're like, iota or dot? Does anyone here read the King James Version, by the way? Do you know what the King James Version says here? It says not a a jot or tittle will be uh, taken away. You're like, doesn't that make it clear? You're like, oh yeah, jot, tittle. Okay, great. Let's move on here. No, uh, a, a jot is uh, kind of the transliteration, I guess, of the smallest Hebrew letter in the alphabet there is. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I've seen the, the picture of it. And it's like kind of like a little comma that's much smaller than all the other uh, letters. And a tittle was kind of like a, you know, in the serif font where you have, like, say you have like a letter T and it's like this, and then you have the, like, the little thing on the end. Hebrew letters had those little things in some of the letters, and that's, what he, that's kind of what the tittle stands for. And so he's saying, not the smallest letter or the smallest marking on a letter have I come to do away with in the Old Testament. But Jesus says, um, he looks at this crowd and he says, don't think that I've taken away from God's law. Don't, don't paint me into that corner because you don't understand what I'm trying to do. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 17, I've actually fulfilled the Old Testament, all you meticulous law keepers. I'm, I'm the embodiment of this coming to a fulfillment. And so this brings up the monumental question and probably the most confusing thing that people have argued about for this passage for a long time. It is, how does Jesus fulfill the law and prophets and what exactly does that mean? So, When many of us think of the Old Testament law, um, the law, if you're pretty new to the Bible, it starts with the 10 commandments that you've probably heard of. And then there's another 603 commandments after that. And um, when we think of it, we we think a lot of times of these obscure rules and regulations about Sabbath keeping and food laws and sacrifices of different kinds of animals and grain and and different kinds of things and being clean and unclean. And what we kind of know about the law is like, in a way, we just don't really do that stuff anymore, right? It's quite confusing. But let me ask you a question. Uh, What is the purpose of the law? in the Old Testament. Now, if you're new to the Bible, uh, you might answer, and this is totally fine, uh, you might say, I don't know, I have no idea. Uh, If you've been around church, you've been around the Bible for a while, um, probably your first impulse is uh, to say um, that the law exists to show us our sin and show us our need and our savior. And to you, I would say, you're right, it does that. If you read Paul in the New Testament in Romans, he actually says that through the law, we actually see how we fall short or, or that we're sinners. But what I wanna say to you tonight is that is a piece of it, but I think God is doing something more in the law. There's kind of an overarching idea to it. And I wanna explain that to you tonight. So you see in the Bible, in Genesis, at the very beginning, God speaks to this old, old man named Abraham. Um, And 
And he tells him that he's going to make a covenant with him, that he's going to get into a relationship with him and his family. And he said, I'm going to bless your family. Your family is going to be blessed to be a blessing, but, but you're, going to be, you're going to be my people. Your family is going to be connected with me in a relationship. You fast forward to the next book in the Bible, Exodus, and you know in the book of Exodus, the, Abraham's family grows to thousands of people, um, and then they get put into slavery in Egypt, Right? That's the next thing that happens. And then after 400 years of slavery, God comes and rescues his covenant people, his, his people that he's in relationship with. He delivers them out of slavery through the 10 plagues and through Moses. And then they walk through the Red Sea. They get through all this craziness. They come to this mountain called Mount Sinai. And there he makes another covenant with them because he wants to make them officially his people or his nation. And in this covenant, there is a mutual understanding of relational faithfulness of God to the people and the people to God. Now, I want you to listen to Exodus 19. We're going to read three verses starting in verse four. And this is what it says. Listen for the the, the relational faithfulness. It says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. This is God talking. And how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, when God gives the law to his people right after this, which starts with the Ten Commandments, and then there's another 600 plus laws after that, he is describing what it will look like for the people to live faithfully with him. He's giving them laws to govern what it would look like to live faithfully in a relationship. Notice he doesn't say, I'm about to give you rules so that you can know if you're good enough to get to heaven or not. If you follow them, he says, we are in a covenant relationship and here's how I want you to live with me. Now, it's kind of similar. Uh, It uh, illustrations always break down, but it's kind of similar to wedding vows. Now, how many of you are married in here? How many of you remember your wedding vows? Anyone? Okay, no one. Oh, wait, a couple people. If your spouse is raising your hand, you just raise your hand too. It'll go over better when you leave from here. But I remember a few things from my wedding vows, and I remember um, uh, telling Carrie at the altar, hey, I will prioritize you. I remember telling her, you are my new family now, and there's a bunch of other stuff that I think sounded pretty good. I'll have to go home and look, because I have them in a drawer somewhere. But the idea of wedding vows is not the idea of just focusing on this promise or this rule just so you can obey the rule, right? But the idea is if you carry out these things, you will then be in a relationship that flourishes. You will then be in a relationship where there's faithfulness, where where there's a, a relational flourishing. And so the law in the Old Testament is a story of how God is trying to help his people live in a relationship with him. And God gives his people the law so they can live life with him. Now, do they do it? You guys know how the rest of the story goes? Over and over and over, God's people fail him, right? They're unfaithful. Their hearts are far from him. They're not righteous, right? So continue on with the marriage analogy. Later in the Old Testament, the people of God have failed so much, and God has let them go into exile. And while they're in exile, um, the the prophet Jeremiah picks up and and it describes what God is going to do, how he's going to reach out to them through a new plan or a new covenant. So we've seen a couple covenants already. Stick with me through this last one because I think this will make things come together. A new covenant. And he says in Jeremiah 31, 
verse 31, it says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, he was faithful, he was perfect in this, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I, he's gonna do something different with their hearts. I'm gonna put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is looking forward to what Jesus is going to do, how Jesus is going to fulfill the law, to do something new, to be able to sustain and make this relationship flourish. So God recognized in us that none of us could live this out. He recognized that the Old Testament people of Israel could not live this out with their broken and sinful hearts. We couldn't be a faithful spouse, and so Jesus had to step in and do it for us. And in doing that, when we are forgiven through Jesus' work on the cross, we are brought back into relationship with him. So on one hand, Jesus fulfills the law by being our reconciler. He fulfills the law by being our redeemer that gets us back into relationship with God, into this covenant marriage. But then there's another layer. Jesus knows that people never live righteously and obey God perfectly. And so the way that God makes this renewed relationship even better is through the gospel. He puts his law within us. He writes it on our heart. He fulfills the law by making us be able to live with our hearts different. So you've heard this language in the New Testament of being born again, of being new, or 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What this says is that he enables us to live righteously, to bring our hearts into alignment with God by giving us a new heart, by giving us a heart that follows him. And so this means two things, two ways that Jesus fulfills the law. If you're a Christian, that you no longer have to be in doubt of whether you will be in covenant relationship with Jesus because Jesus has been faithful for you. It's guaranteed. You're, he's never going to break that relationship. So even in your doubts, even in your sin, even at your lowest moments, he has been perfectly righteous. That's the first way. But not only that, the second way is he has given you a new heart and the power of Jesus and the desires of Jesus are now actually put inside of you. We've essentially had a, a heart transplant of Jesus's heart coming inside of us and the spirit lives inside of us, cultivating a new kind of righteousness that is new and different so that we can actually bring our exterior actions and our internal heart into alignment with him. He makes this possible. So in this new covenant, the only way that we are able to live righteously is through this new regenerated heart that he has given to us. And this is the call of the middle section of the Sermon on the Mount that you're going to see over the next six weeks, this idea of not just doing on the outside what's good, but actually having our hearts be in a place where we want to do what's right. And that comes from Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, take a deep breath. Now back into the context of our sermon Jesus, remember in verse 17, he is rebuking the scribes and Pharisees, showing that he is completely living righteously in line with God's heart. And then he points out the two ways that we most commonly fail. And first, he talks about the rebellious. Now, I think it's important for us to just consider humbly, hey, are there one of these ways 
that, that I tend to fall. Like when it comes to, to following Jesus, if I kind of fall out of line, it's one of these, like, am I more prone to fail in one of these ways than the other? So I want to read verse 19 for you. And it describes the first way. It says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So remember, Jesus got, just got criticized and they said, hey, you don't care about righteousness. And now he's turning around and said, no, no, no. I'm the only one who truly cares about righteousness. As a matter of fact, if you eliminate anything from the Bible, if you cut out anything, if you ignore anything, um, and you teach others to do the same, you're going to be called least in the kingdom of God, not really a place that you want to be. So Jesus is alerting them to some kind of danger that for us in the room, for the self-proclaiming Christian, and we don't regard the whole Bible, if we don't regard it as, as truth, that's a that's a bad place to be. He says, those people are least in the kingdom. And you've heard the story of Thomas Jefferson, right? That, that uh, Thomas Jefferson, a, a brilliant man who knew many languages, but, but there were parts of the Bible that he didn't like. And so he literally took a, a knife to his Bible and, and cut out the parts of, of, of Jesus, a lot of the miracles, different things that he didn't like. Except, actually, I think he cut out the parts that he did like, and he put them all in a notebook, put them together, and then came up with his own version of Jesus that, that fit his tastes. And that's part of what Jesus is warning against. Do we kind of make Jesus the way that we want him to be? Do we live out a version of what we want Christianity and Jesus to be while ignoring other things? And I think this has become ever so prominent in our culture as this idea of like self-expression rises to the top as one of the top values in our culture and authority kind of, kind of lowers. We're tempted in this uh, to to go this way of rebellion, to ignore parts of the scripture. And so I think we're gonna to have to ask ourselves some hard questions tonight. The first one is this. Are there any commands in the Bible, any commands of God that you intentionally ignore? Just think about that for a second. <clears throat> or are there any commands or moral teachings in the Bible and you know what they say, but yet you're just not willing to go there because you don't trust that Jesus has what's best for you. You could probably make a better way, that you could come up with something that's better. We have to ask, are we kind of crafting our own Bible or are we taking it for what, it's, for what it says? Uh, I don't know. There's scholars kind of differ on what exactly least in the kingdom means. I can tell you this. I don't know exactly, but it's not a place that we want to be, Right? Some people said, hey, least in the kingdom means you're not in at all. And other people said, well, if you're least in the kingdom, it, it means that you're kind of, um, you're not utilized, you're not fulfilled in the kingdom. Your gifts aren't front and center in the kingdom. Whatever the case is, that's not somewhere where we want to be. And so we have to ask ourselves, are there parts of the Bible that we ignore because we don't like them? I think in our culture, some of the most common areas um, that we do this inside the church, outside the church, um, our, our teachings on human sexuality, like, okay, I'm, I'm just going to ignore that part. Or, or teachings on the idea of sex 
in the, like committed in the confines of marriage or sometimes like teachings about money. A lot of these things we will push to the outside. Now, by the way, I'm not saying that every teaching in the Bible is easy and clear to understand all of the implications and applications. I'm just saying if we know something is there and we're stiff arming it, we're cutting it out of our Bible, in essence, that's not a place we want to be. Jesus says those kinds of people, when you teach others to do the same, you become least in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus has brought you into a relationship with him to flourish in this relationship. His commands are for your best. They exist to foster a more intimate relationship with him. They exist to to bring him glory on our earth so so people will see you and glorify him in heaven, just as we talked about last week. And I can't say for sure what least in the kingdom exactly means, but I know that it's not a place that we want to be. And so the call, if you find yourself in this place, is to repent and turn to him tonight. It's to stop ignoring the new heart that he's given you and instead live out this calling to to embrace his commandments and to teach others to do the same. That's the second half of this verse. He says, those who who obey, those who teach will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The first warning is to avoid the ditch of rebellion. The the other side is what I'm calling the, the religious. It's the last verse of this section, verse 20. I want to read this for you. It says, for I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's Jesus' words. If you want to enter the kingdom, you have to be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes were like the religious professors of the day. The Pharisees were this Jewish sect that were like so meticulous in how they did everything that above and beyond the 613 laws of the law, they actually added to it to make it more detailed so they could scrupulously follow this completely. And so when Jesus is saying that your righteousness has to exceed these people, I mean, there's no great translation, but the best way into our culture would be to say, hey, you gotta be more righteous than Mother Teresa. You gotta be more righteous than Billy Graham. You have to look better than anyone who is the best of the best. These listeners would have been shocked, except Jesus doesn't actually buy into their version of righteousness. He's actually reframing righteousness. It's not just about external actions. He said, I see through you. I see your external actions, but I don't see your heart. You're not truly living righteously because your hearts haven't been brought into line. And that was Jesus' biggest criticism of the religious leaders of his day. And so now this question comes to us. Do our hearts line up with our external actions? Are they all in line with God? Now, this particularly hits home to me because I feel like it was one of the greatest realizations of my story. So if you're new here, um, you might not know this, but growing up, I, uh, uh, I won trophies for memorizing verses in my Awana class on Wednesday night. Um, when I got to high school, I never partied or touched alcohol once. Uh, I never got in trouble by the law or by teachers. I went to a Bible college and got a Bible college degree. Afterwards, I worked for a, a, a youth ministry. So I was uh, I was working uh, for the kingdom, in essence, into my early 20s. And it wasn't until I was 26 when I had this specific night 
I was at a gym, playing open gym basketball, and I got so angry and so mad that I shoved this dude, and I was so, like, stormed off the court, so angry that we had lost, like, four games in a row, by the way, and I was so mad that every cuss word in my head that I could think of to describe the other team, I was describing them as I was, like, storming out of the building. Meanwhile, by the way, this was at a Bible college that we were playing, and I was playing against all Christian people, and... So I was driving home and I was so angry. And at that moment, God grabbed a hold of my heart and he said, hey, I don't care how many people you smile at. I don't care how kind you are. I don't care how many good things you do or how many different ministries you work for. Your heart is hard and you are angry in your heart and you are bitter and it's cold and it's dark. And for the first time, at a deep, deep heart level, God broke me down on my way home to repent and and to turn to him in that way because I had external actions, but my heart was out of alignment with him. So this pops off the page to me. It's like, oh, I, I know how that works. And so maybe God is challenging some of us tonight to consider, hey, it, it, is my heart out of line with my actions? And are those out of line with, with God's heart for me? I think there's probably a couple different ways that this could come out. Um, for some of us, maybe we show up here on Sundays and you show up to city group and you do the thing and you've gotten good enough to be able to, you know, you can pray out loud and you can like sound like a faithful Christian. You can come here, you know, the words to the song um, and, you know, maybe you can raise your hands up, but, but you know that if you would look in your heart, that there's something different going on. There's a sense in, in which you're, you're putting on a front. You're going through the motions, but, but there's something in your heart that's different. It's kind of a facade of sorts. And if you're putting on a show, that, that religious ditch can actually be more dangerous than the rebellious ditch because you can put on a show and no one knows. You can cover it up. At least rebellious people, you kind of know, right? You can call them out, but you can keep that to yourself the whole time. And so if that's the place that you're in, I think Jesus is calling to turn to him, to give your heart to him. I think there may be a more subtle way that this happens as well. Um, Maybe not quite that intentional, but maybe a more general assessment is in order for some of us. That maybe your heart is just actually kind of hard. And you could probably find that out by by just looking around and realizing that you have, you just have trouble loving people. You have trouble being generous to people. And maybe when you interact with people, um, maybe anger and bitterness is a lot quicker to come out than forgiveness and love. Maybe being judgmental of someone is a lot quicker to do than, than leading with grace and pursuing people forgiving people. The call, if you're religious, is one to righteousness. The first step in that is to repent and turn back to him, right? If Jesus has saved you, if he's given you a new heart and new desires, he has set you apart to live faithfully for him, to not only do it on the outside, but to bring your heart into alignment 
with him. And Jesus has given you a new heart so that you can live in alignment. It's for your own good. It's for the good of the intimacy of your relationship with God. It's, it's for the good of the people around you so they can look at you and, and see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. It's for the good of God so he can get glory from living in alignment with him. Providence family, because he has given us new hearts, because he's given us a new covenant for us, we should be a family of people who seek to align our hearts and our actions with God and his will. There is a different way. We have been empowered to live in alignment with him. And so uh, tonight, um, we wanna take, as an act of, of kind of turning our hearts to him or showing our whole person devotion, um, uh, we're going to take communion together. So I'm going to invite the band up. Um, and I want you to know that if this is, this is just, kind of, uh, just kind of the tip of the iceberg tonight, the next six weeks, we're going to look out very practically of how this is going to apply to us. And so I, I would invite you to come back and see this. But tonight, I think that, that God, as usually when we gather, God wants to, to do business with our hearts. And he wants to invite us to turn to him. And so I would... Uh, invite you as you come forward, as the, the ushers come are dismiss you to come forward, to truly examine your heart before you take communion. Is are there any ways that maybe your external actions are out of line with what Jesus calls you to do? Or maybe you're kind of in the other ditch and there's um, ways that your heart, even though you're you're going through the motions, your heart is actually harder. It's far from him. You're not feeling a sense of intimacy with him. Is there something you need to repent of? Is there a way that you need to turn back to him? The beauty is, is that uh, the righteous way um, has been paved by the righteous one. That Jesus, perfect in every way, um, went to the cross as the perfect sacrifice for us. Um, and because of that, um, we have been invited to this family. That's what we reflect in, in communion, that through his body and through his blood, he paid the penalty for our sins. And now we can be reunited with him. And also, as it says in Jeremiah 31, we've been given a new heart. So there's a reason to rejoice. But Jesus is waiting with open arms for us to walk with him. He wants us to uh, show faith in him and also to walk in faithfulness to him. And so tonight, um, I would invite you to examine your hearts and then consider um, how you can bring your actions and your heart into alignment with him as we take communion together. So I'm going to invite our, um, our uh, communion servers forward. Uh, we're going to have some ushers that will dismiss you by rows. If you are not a follower of Jesus, um, I would invite you to stay seated. Maybe consider how God might be inviting you um, into a relationship with him. Maybe he's inviting you to live this way where your actions and your heart come into alignment with his so you can live out his purposes, so you can live in relationship with him. Maybe you can ponder that. Maybe you can pray into that. Um, but for right now, let's, as a family, take this family meal together um, and running into the open, forgiving arms of Jesus, knowing that he's given us a new heart to live in a new way.